good y'all it is your boy jonathan dumas this is the highly visible and a little misunderstood podcast really excited to be with y'all again and to continue our theme entrepreneuring while bipoc so i know that y'all really enjoyed that last episode with theon freeman it was so so fun i tried to tell y'all he was amazing so if you need any officiating or event specialist stuff go ahead hit him up he's wonderful 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 this week, we had the amazing opportunity to sit down with my friend, Allison Konishiro, who is an educational specialist. She knows all things education and educational equity. And so I'm really excited to talk about this because as you all know, that was my first part of my career working in higher education. And I'm really passionate about education and, and supporting folks. So really excited about this conversation. And I've loved all of my conversations with all these entrepreneurs, right? And one of the things that I always been pitching, have been sharing with them, the thing that keeps me going is my wonderful supplement, Magic Mind. Um, I've told y'all about this before, you know, provides that clarity, that grounding energy, that good mental focus for me. And especially as somebody, not only as an entrepreneur, but somebody who has is an ADHD. I'm neurospicy, y'all. And so sometimes focus is really hard and having too much co coffee makes me super jittery and anxious. It does the opposite effect for me. I like taking this as an alternative. Um, and I recommend it to, you know, not just entrepreneurs, parents, you got a regular nine to five. You don't drink coffee, but you want some kind of supplement. Like this is something that could fit that need. So I actually have a code that I wanted to share with y'all. If you go to magicmind.com visible and use the code visible20, you get 20% off on that first order and they have a money back guarantee. So just test it out, see if it works, see if you like it, you know, whatever. But before we actually move on into the show and the conversation with Allison, I want to tap into these pod logistics. So first things first, y'all, if you want to support the show financially, there are two ways to do that. The first way is our Patreon page. And there's three tiers on that, three, five, and 10. Those three tiers are a monthly way to support the show. So go ahead and tap into that uh, if you feel so inclined. The second one is, is our coffee page. And that's a one-time support. So if you want to go ahead and support the show that way, you can do that. Both of those links are in the show notes. Second piece is, is we have an email list now, y'all. And we're really, really excited to uh, put more like blog type of stuff together, any other cool things that may be coming up around the show. So I encourage, I want to invite y'all to tap into that. And the first hundred people, the first hundred people sign up for our email list, will get a uh, sticker. And so we'll be sending out uh, actually a couple stickers, not just one. We'll be sending those out. And finally, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, if you've done that, rate us, leave us a review. All those things help, help other people find the show. And also, you know, Give us a little energy boost, letting us know that we're doing something right. Let us know. We want to hear from you. Um, yeah, I think that that is all, y'all. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. And here is the highly visible story of the week. All right, y'all. So let us get into the highly visible story of the week. I want to tap into something that's actually a critical issue that I'm not it's not getting as much attention as it deserves. It actually is the cobalt crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This was something that was brought to my attention a while ago, but I haven't really like done anything with it. Uh, but I started thinking about Black Friday, and I'm going to make the connection in a second, but I just want to start here with what cobalt is. So cobalt is a vital component in our devices. It powers everything from smartphones to electric cars, and it, a significant portion of the cobalt that is sourced um, in the world actually comes from the DRC. And mining is tied to ethical and environmental concerns there around, around cobalt. The mining industry in the, the DRC face, has been facing many issues for years around child labor and unsafe working conditions. And it's leading to a gigantic, and I mean gigantic humanitarian crisis, y'all. And here's how it connects to Black Friday. You know, the demand for all the techie, tech stuff that we want, that new TV, the new phone, car, whatever. On Black Friday, on this gigantic uh, shopping day, the hugest shopping day here in the U.S., it fuels the cobalt crisis. Um, and I know our lives are literally tech-driven, but it's really contributing to the problem in a real way. And so as we chase these like incredible deals, once-in-a-lifetime, quote-unquote, deals that we will never see again, quote-unquote, that's what we tell ourselves, right? It's crucial to consider the supply chain. You know, many of these products are on sale, are powered by cobalt batteries. And this is perpetuating the unethical practices that these tech companies are, are participating in. And, but there's something that we can do. There's something that us individuals can do. 
we can be conscious consumers. When we choose companies that prioritize ethical sourcing and support initiatives promoting fair labor and environmental sustainability, our choices can send a powerful message, right? And we know that these companies aren't going to pay attention, are not going to make significant changes unless their wallets hit. So we, that's what we need to do. We need to choose ethical practices. And so as the holiday season approaches, like let's remember the impact that we can have as individuals when we're making these purchases. Are we looking up and seeing where that cobalt is sourced? Where these materials are sourced? Do we need a brand new thing? Do we need to buy a new TV? Is it, can our TV just work for right now, right? What about even buying a refurbished product? Like <laughs> old doesn't necessarily mean bad. We don't need the most brand new thing. This has been going on for a while, y'all. When we make ethical choices, when we decide what we what we actually need versus what we want and kind of make more conscious decisions, uh, we can make a difference in this case, right? This is a very practical thing that we can do. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and provide, you know, some additional sources in the show. One is that Throughline podcast. It's called um, The Ghost in Your Phone, where they talk about this crisis that's been going on for a while. And then also Cobalt Red by Siddhartha Kara, who literally went to these mines, took pictures, um, documented it, and has been really raising the alarm for this um, as well in, in recent years, a- along with all, obviously Congolese people. But this is one of those books that have um, come to my mind. I'm just like, wow, folks need to read this. So both of those resources are in there. Um, but yeah, y'all. All right. That was the highly visible story of the week. Let us get into this conversation with Allison. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on the show. How are you doing this morning, today, this afternoon? I don't know what time is. <laughs> I'm in another time zone this week, so I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Oh my gosh. I feel that. Um, good morning. Yes, I'm in Oakland, California. It's about 9.20. It was really gr- a really great morning for me. I was able to take some time to journal in preparation for our conversation. I'm so excited to reconnect with you again yeah. and have a great conversation about entrepreneurship today. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I love um, I love work and and I mean that in the context of like, I love the study of work because I'm an organizational psychologist. I mean, I feel like my listeners are really tired of hearing that, but I just like love to study work, always been fascinated with work. Um, and within a US or American context, like it's a big, gigantic part of our lives. And so I think the added layer of us both being entrepreneurs, I think it's a, we're choosing to, <laughs> to work a significantly a more a, amount more than maybe somebody who does like a W-2 job and also add another layer of stress. So it's so interesting to talk to entrepreneurs because <laughs> they get it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's, I was thinking about that as we were, uh, you know, in our cohort, that's how we met and, mm. uh, a BIPOC business cohort and just thinking about the first time I saw all of us in the Zoom room together and how it felt to have this affinity with other people that I feel like are really driven, but really heart-centered and mm. and have shared values and also know what it feels like to experience the highs and lows of entrepreneurship while just trying to put on a good game face for everyone and navigating all the things that we maybe never grew up learning, uh, but, or maybe grew up learning from a distance, not actually having it modeled for me personally in my home. Mm -hmm. We will probably talk more about that. And, uh, but I, I felt a strong affinity for, for everyone that is on the same journey. Yeah, no, I, I um, resonate deeply with that. I think it's, I have, I've been in spaces like that before, but I think in a long-term kind of sort of collaborative, but like group together where we're on this journey. And sometimes when you go in there, you're like, oh man, like I'm so far behind. And then you're like, nope, you're right where you need to be. And then like other parts, you're like, oh, I am, I am like a little bit ahead of here. And so like the balance and connection and, and like even, you know, gut check and just sharing your resources, all those different things is just really, really cool to see. And mm-hmm. we're all entrepreneurs of color. So it's just like those added layers. There's no ex- extra explaining. There's no like all the other stuff that you have to with other like little learning things that are group things that I've been a part of. This was just, just a really, really dope, dope time. I, I, I've, I freaking loved it. It was dope. Um, awesome. So yes, we did meet in the ready to leap cohort, which is now ready to liberation. Shout out Carissa Begonia. I'm going to literally shout her out throughout this series. Y'all, um, 
all the time because she's amazing. Follow her stuff. But I would love for you to just share like, yo, who is Allison? You know, like what um, yeah. what do you do? What are you passionate about? What's, what's fun for you? Favorite color? All the things. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really love this. I When I, again, was journaling about this, I would say that I am first, you know, the roles in my family. I'm a mm. daughter, sister, cousin, auntie. Mm. and friend to man, many people. Mm. Uh, I think the, the identities that stand out for me among many others are that I identify as Japanese Okinawan and mm. a woman. My work professionally is in education and specifically centered around addressing learning challenges mm. in school settings. My background is in special education. And so my work now, it's been 20 years since nice. I started in education, and my work now is split. I'm part-time at a school in San Francisco as an associate director of learning services, so I still get the benefit of working, you know, in groups with other educators, you know, during that time. And then I also run a private practice called Learning Specialist LLC, nice. where I coach students one-on-one and run workshops for educators and I'm growing my practice to include consulting and coaching for educators. I am in California, but my home is in Hawaii. That's where my heart is. That's where, you know, I grew up and I would love to bring some of my work there and we'll see what comes of that. But I also want to expand to supporting parents and other caring adults who might be like psychologists or mm-hmm. other specialists who want to be a part of a team and lead a tailored approach to supporting children with learning differences, who are experiencing challenges navigating school and sometimes the expectations that just come with life. So mm. that's where I'm going. That's where I'm where I am. Mm. But thank you for that question. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And yeah, 20 years of education. Shout out to you um, because I was in higher ed for. Uh, four or five years, and I was just like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm solid. I'm good. 20 years of education, le- legitimately, like you deserve like a plaque, a, you know, a giant like thing somewhere engraved somewhere because it's not easy. It really, really is not easy. I would say the same for you. I mean, I spent two semesters and just teaching one class as an adjunct professor. And I was out. I said, this is not for me. This is like another, it feels very much like I'm starting at the bottom rung and Mm. I need to do all these things to prove myself in what feels like an extremely extractive system. Of course, this is highly biased. Obviously, I left, but in feeling like I have to do all the, learn all these new rules and do all these things like, to get a tenure and to get approval from other, from white men, more white men that are going to have to prove, you know, the work that I'm doing. I absolutely don't want to do any of, of that anymore. And so yeah. that was one yeah. decision that I, you know, there was a decision point where I could say, Oh, do you want to go into academia and yep. pursue that path? And I was in my thirties. I'm like, I'm tired. I'm done. I'm going to actually yeah. go do other things. Yep. Work with students bring me joy and yeah. work on you know in doing those sorts of things as a practitioner yeah. and bring my my knowledge and skills there oh um, my gosh yeah so i five years you need a you need a plaque you yeah. should get a yeah. plaque a scholarship yeah you know. <laughs> well they gave me 50 percent off my master's degree i guess yeah. that I guess that's yeah, exactly guess that's... discounts on discounts on discounts <laughs> yeah. forever. Exactly. Yeah. That's what you should get. Oh my <laughs> god. That's hilarious. I'm there. So why why education though, Allison? Because I yeah. feel like I don't know, it can it can be th- it can be, you know, thankless. And I think there's sometimes you don't see the rewards in, in the work that you're doing and the work with the students. Right. Um, you know, I'm a huge I have like a list of teachers that like here's my book idea, Allison. I know I started okay. a question and then I'm going to yes. tell a story, but here it is. So my book, <laughs> yes, I love tangents. You're, you're on the podcast with ADHD or you already know. So, um, yes. so uh, my book idea is literally like, I want to write a book of like gratitude. There's moments throughout my like educational journey, entrepreneurial journey, life journey 
of just stories and written letters that if I could find these people that I would really love to write them a letter. Like Mrs. Duffy was the first person, um, shout out second grade teacher, Mrs. Duffy. I don't know if she is still alive, but the, um, I thought she hated me. I literally thought she hated me. And, and, uh, I remember a parent teacher conference and, um, we were sitting in a parent teacher conference and she was like, Jonathan is one of the brightest students I've ever had. And she was, and she is like, his reading comprehension is like unreal. Like the way he takes in all, she started giving me all this high praise. I was like, who is this woman? And she also taught me how to blow my nose. Like she didn't have to do that. It's just like different things and moments like that. And I remember like, that is one of the highlights of my mind of someone who, I don't know, just, I wasn't used to receiving care in the way that that she did and i and, and i don't know i think I, I had this idea of her because the way she looked she had you know rbf but the uh but she was the sweetest she was incredibly kind and so sweet and just like patient and just like yeah i i don't know it was so it was so wild and so i want to write a book of gratitude anyways that's the tangent of just like love letters to like these teachers mrs duffy mr ewing in third grade and sixth grade um, I don't yeah. remember my earth science teacher in middle school, La Mesa middle school, but like I cried yeah. for her. Cause my, I was, I was the last person to get picked up after sixth grade camp. Anyway. So <laughs> she just like hugged me. It was just like all these different, like, you know, thank you. Grat- letters okay. of gratitude. So um, anyways, back to the question. That's the yeah. tension. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Tangent. And we got to, yeah. I want to call back that at the end or something, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And so what the question why education? Uh, why education? Yes. And so I think you actually, I love your your vignette or your story because it helps me to find connections in, you know, my personal story and upbringing. You know, we have histories on histories. And like you said, thank you letters. And, you know, my mom was a second grade teacher and she's probably the teacher that a lot of students also said, this lady, I don't know if she's down for me. She's always like telling me what to do, making sure I was doing it. And, you know, she had that balance. She is like the accountability lady, you know, and, and she really also was very warm. She would always look out for kids. She teach them how to, you know, do all the little things very, you know, motherly in Mm -hmm. that, in that sense. And I think that growing up with a mom, like that, who she was like a non-traditional student. She had to go to night classes. She actually mm. stayed at home to take care of my brother and I uh, growing up. Mm. So for a little while, she taught conversa- conversational Japanese at a high school part-time. And then she got her credential when I was in middle school, her teaching credential. She's actually tra- uh, trained as an accountant. Uh, and so I think similar, though, in terms of just messaging, right? Asian women in... Hawaii, there's a lot of us in education. Okay. So we see that as our profession and there we go, you know, and there's a stereotype of that people joke about, like Joe Coy talks a lot about, uh, he's a great, shout out Filipino American History Month. You know, he's a Filipino American comedian. Oh yeah, comedian. Yep. And he talks about all the nurses that are Filipino female nurses. And that's, that's the track. Some of it is rooted in that, you know, where maybe we feel like, uh, like an attainable goal, Mm. you know, being a, being an Asian woman in education feels like an attainable goal. It's Mm -hmm. secure. It's something, you know, I think that was an easy choice for me, but my mom encouraged me to do what I wanted, but she also had my brother and I volunteer in her classroom when we were, kids. And so I did that. I did summer fun, you know, so I was always one of those kids that like to take care of others. Mm. Uh, I was the oldest cousin. And so during the Olympic summer, I would create gymnastics. Amazing. Amazing. There's no internet that we did not have cable. Mm. We had no Disney channel. It was just the news all day. So we had to play. And so I was, you know, curating all these activities for everyone. So it was kind of came naturally. (laughs) And I just enjoy doing that part of the the education work. And then, you know, as I got, I think as I got older, I started to see how incredibly important the work 
is that it was much more complex than just creating these cute little activities like arts and crafts and things like that that maybe mm. I thought it was growing up. Yeah. Uh, I do have a natural sort of affinity to working with students. Uh, I struggled with math growing up and mm. you know there's there's a there's a dark side to the model minority myth, right? Where people think, "Oh, you're 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 gifted and talented." So you have this you're gifted in language. So you're mm. good at writing. You must be good at math too, right? Mm. And so they put me in, the, they put me in this track where I was totally struggling. They put me mm. in gifted math. I didn't have the fundamentals. Mm. My parents didn't know. They're like, whatever, whatever the school wants, just, just follow what they do. And I was crying in my seventh grade class because mm. my teacher was teaching from a worksheet. And this is the '90s. We have no internet. We have no technology. Nothing to help me build my math fluency. Yeah. And later on, right, I, I realized like there's a lot of people, kids like me out there that might be able to mask. Probably like you, you have great reading comprehension, mm. but the there's some executive function kinds of you know places where you needed some ex- explicit scaffolding and mm-hmm. someone to just teach you. This is how you blow. You know, you grab this, and then this is the next step, and then yeah. you do all these these things. And I, and it's simple. So that that's the part for me. I'm like, these are simple things that if we just have our, take us, take a beat and think about the diversity within our classroom mm. and that there are very simple things we can do that benefit a lot of students. So that's like yeah. universal design. So I'm going off on a tangent, but no, I see yeah. in education, <laughs> I yeah. see in education because, you know, I had the privilege that I think the academic privilege, right. To be able to with all the degrees I've had, I've been able to work at places that are really intellectually stimulating and mm. want to uh, focus on improving and growing as uh, ed- their educators. And so I learned about universal design and how mm. that my background in special education can really benefit all students, right? So like yeah. designing curriculum the same way architects design buildings with the most accessibility so that there you don't have to retrofit and spend more time and money later on mm-hmm. making things accessible but thinking up front and being proactive and thinking about ways to be inclusive and design for the majority of people that can benefit i love that and that's what universal design it almost feels like mm-hmm. <laughs> designing education with an equity lens like that's 100 percent. yeah yeah yeah. Is, would that be like the simple, is that, is that what universal design is or like? I would say, yeah. So universal design for learning is uh, it's, it's a big, it's a complex framework. So it's a okay. way that you can, you know, you can design lessons and, and the, the simplest form of it is that you have multiple forms of like representation mm-hmm. in terms of how you represent um information, knowledge, multiple ways that you can engage with that, right? Mm -hmm. So giving students different options for engagement. So Mm -hmm. not like stigmatizing or pathologizing that some kids need a preferential seating. Some Mm -hmm. kids are going to need the calculator while others don't, Mm -hmm. Um, that sort of thing. So in some ways, making the accommodations available Mm -hmm. um, to students to see that you know, those are things that you can, those are tools you can access. So looking at all the different tools that we have, uh, while not discounting that some students, right, that have learning disabilities will need those tools Mm. and that it's not always appropriate to, you know, just universally design for all in the sense that we do have to prioritize the needs of students with disabilities who need a lot more repetition or structured you know, structured choice and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But what, again, it does is it, the one of the, I think, byproducts of of universal design is destigmatizing, you know, accessibility tools mm-hmm. that everyone can benefit from. So like uh, dictation tools, right? Mm-hmm. Audiobooks. Yeah. So incorporating those things into lessons to see that these are things that any person can use, but it's really critical for some of us, some of us who have dyslexia, some of us yeah. who have ADHD really need these tools to keep up, you know, to, so that the le- the playing field is level. Absolutely. Um, so that we're all entering a similar spot. That reminds me of a conversation I just had with a, a friend who just started teaching out of school where uh, I'm going to mess this up. I can't remember. She has at least like nine kids that need extra additional Mm -hmm. support with some sort of like that needs some level of uh learning support like additional learning support and it's just her in the classroom Mm -hmm. she has like nine 
And she's like, I was like, that's a statistical anomaly that you would have nine students in your, in your single class of like 18. Um, that that's wild. Yeah. Uh, but she's like, I'm only You're- one person. I can't support them all like to the level that they absolutely need. Yeah. Yeah. And so aligned with, you know, universal design there, um, you know, prior to that, what I actually, my whole dissertation is on this, uh, another framework called response to intervention. And that Mm. is something that has to do with like literacy intervention in terms of my dissertation. What we wanted to do was uh, look at the, Typical, typically, and this is how it relates, is that if you think of like a pyramid, typically at the top of the pyramid, it's like a little point, right? And that's about 3%. So about mm. 3% of most classrooms, schools, generally speaking, when you look at the response to interv- intervention sort of um, lens, it's about 3% of students that should need some kind of um, like intense or like special education mm-hmm. level support. And then there's a wider band there uh, under there. So about, and the, the numbers fluctuate, but the the majority of students that are at the bottom of that band, like about, I would say about 75, 80 that can benefit from tier one. Tier mm-hmm. one is just, um, you know, every classroom differentiation. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you might need a little more time here, here, you're, you'll get a little more time in this activity, easy kinds of adjustments to curriculum. Yeah. And there's like a middle tier in between those two where um, some of the some of the students will need a little bit more help. So mm. when you when we would look at class structures, we would see how many students receive this level of intervention that they need a plan, that mm. they actually have to go through an evaluation, get special education support often. And then who is in the middle that needs more support, uh, maybe some structure, and then the bottom where we can just differentiate and offer, you know, some options there. And mm. so to that, you're to your point, you already instinctively knew that like, out of 18, only about 3% should, should yeah. need, but 3 to 5% should need, depending, you know, on average. That's how the population typically falls. Yeah. Um, but there's something going on there. Yeah. Very, very off. Yeah. Very, very mm-hmm. off. And it's like, I believe she was saying four of them were on IEPs and then four of them were like, yeah. she was like, there's nothing mm-hmm. official here, but like, I know like the symptoms that are like at at place you know and so it's it's very 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 yeah very very interesting very very interesting what she was sharing that which also shows yeah inequities within our educational system and like how it was designed and this one size fits all approach to education and um i even think back to my own mm-hmm. yeah throughout my educational journey of just like mm-hmm. like there's something missing and i i think i told so i i'm a recent diagnosed uh adhd and so um uh, I told my partner, I said, Lindsay, if mm-hmm. I had medication in college, I would have been straight A's, like easily. Because like to write a paper, like I'm a good writer, but mm-hmm. to go to your point earlier, that executive mm-hmm. function, it is so hard. So I would spend for a five-page paper, a one-page paper, it didn't, know, it didn't matter how long it was, I would spend an right. entire day in the library writing those right. things because like it was excruciating to get all of the words out. And I didn't have like even a framework. Nobody taught me how to write like a paper or anything like that. But when you get, by the time you get to high college, the expectation is like, you have all the skills to succeed. Like, all right, do it. Do but it. Just, but yeah. you don't, and, the, and we're going to unpack all that. Depending on the high school you went to, how many resources were in there with the quality of teachers that are there. Cause depending on where the social location of the right. school, like there might not be the quality of teachers because they can't afford to pay those. I was in a lower mm-hmm. income like area and that school mm-hmm. did not have a lot of money, quality of teachers, right. IE did not match right. that. Um, so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. And so like all right. of these skills that I was supposed to have, and I didn't even go to like some elite yeah. school. I went to a pretty shitty college. So, the, yeah. <laughs> so like this, even still there's uh-huh. an expectation every step of right. the way that you have all the skills that you need to before. And you just, it just doesn't work yeah. that way. Yeah. It just right. does not work that way right. overall. Yeah. And I, and I imagine, uh, because you, you have a similar experience to, you know, some of the students that, you know, I've worked with getting a later diagnosis because typically what's called child fine, you know, like in public schools mm-hmm. is that we are supposed to be observing students and making referrals, 
you know, if we're seeing that students are, you know, having, you know, trouble organizing or what have you, I think that what is trickier now, nowadays, especially, is that there are ways to, you know, cope with learning challenges. And then so that they can be, they can fly under the radar. And I'm wondering, you, did you, did you just continually experience a lot of uh, learning roadblocks or just like, you know, maybe you had some things um, show up for you in work where you felt like, oh, I really need to explore what is going on. I'm just curious what what led you, because um, I hear, you know, what you were talking about in college, that's something I love to help students solve. Like, I got you, you yeah. know, we, I'll show you the little chunk it, right? We'll scaffold it and it'll, mm-hmm. I'll help you every step of the way. Because a lot of times that's what's needed, just breaking mm-hmm. that down. Uh, that process down, especially the writing process. It's so yep. difficult for students, um, ADHD and executive function. It's multi-step. It is uh, it requires planning, organization, mm-hmm. time management, all the executive function skills together. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming for students who have had no intervention. And so for you, like, I'm just curious, how did you get from, you know, where you were in college to your diagnosis? Did something shift for you or did you get the right resource or maybe mm. advice? That's a great question. So it actually, I don't think I would have ever saw a diagnosis if I didn't become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Like no. I'm not even joking. So, um, wow. so I my, would co- not have guessed that. That's it's, cool. it's no. wild. So uh-huh. the, um, so throughout my educational journey, like I'm just really good at copycatting or like mimicking just being like a chameleon kid, like that's just like, and so if something I tried didn't work, I would look at what around in my surrounding areas like did work. Or if I got correction or something like that, oh, I didn't get a good grade on that. All right, I'm going to change and shift my strategy. So literally I would just experimentation and just try try stuff. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that like I flew under the radar for most of the, most of the time mm-hmm. because I was able to like mask really well and find different mice, um, my environment was my scaffold, right? You know what I'm saying? Like okay. surrounding, my, yeah, I was surrounded by, cause I wasn't, I've been in the gate program since I was like third or fourth grade. And so like, okay. I always hung out in like, I was never like the top, top performers. Cause I was, always, I always hung out in like the middle because I was like, all right, just like trying to figure out like different methods. Like when I messed up again, fixed, looked around me. So mm-hmm. when I, when I left the workforce, right. And not looking and not, didn't have any scaffoldings. Like, I was like, mm-hmm. why is this so hard? Because, like, I have the vision. I know this is going to work. I'm good at what I do. Why is this so hard? And, like, I talked to my therapist about it. And I had a friend who had rec- had gotten diagnosed, saw that diagnosis. I I think I, I kept just seeing stuff pop up um, in my feed and everything like that. And I just got more curious, more curious, because I'm like, that's interesting. That aligns there. I resonate with, like, 9 out of 10 things in this, like, ADHD video. <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, and then thankfully my therapist, his son, uh, has, um, uh, ADHD is so he's ADHD as well. So he like even recognized some of the things. So he's like, just take this little survey thing. And I fill it out and I was like, it was like super high. So then, you know, I just went on this year long journey of like, really like trying to figure stuff out, get some planning stuff, scaffolding, break stuff down, all these different things. Um, and then it just became too much. And then I saw an actual diagnosis back in August. Um, and then I literally, within three weeks, they were like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> so like, that's kind of, it was actually, honestly, that's a very short version, but it was three and a, yes. like, not three and a half years. It was like a year and a half journey right. of like right. learning diagnosis, trying to figure out how to set myself mm-hmm. up well, blah, blah, blah. And I'm still right. trying to figure it out. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. yeah to like yes. do it, but. I would have never found out if I did not become an entrepreneur. Like I'm not even joking. Because there was nothing. It was just me. It was nothing else for me to like model after. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I understand. Because the external structures of school, perhaps, yep. like they, they weren't there. So you don't have the feedback of from people, even in your class. That was something mm. we talked about during the pandemic where we saw students their executive function skills really slid back like regressed 
a couple years, especially in middle school. I was working mm. in the middle school at that time mm-hmm. because not only is that period of brain development so critical, but right. So that's happening like sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Yeah. So what we were seeing is that when the eight, like eighth graders came back, their executive function skills were actually more like fifth grade because they weren't mm. receiving the external cues from their classmates. And then yep. even the teachers, they're on a Zoom and the teacher can't walk by and say like, hey, you're actually in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Here, why don't you focus on this? I'm going to cover this part. You don't need, to, right? So we we couldn't monitor yep. the workflow in the way that we could. So they're missing these cues and coming back and we're trying to, um, you know, make up for lost time, the best, mm. the best that we could. Um, and so I can totally understand you know, as somebody observing students, you know, feeling like they have a lot, you know, have a lot to perhaps catch up on what that feels like, um, what that, yeah, that process might feel like. And I know for some people, I'm wondering if this is true for you, some people feel actually like a huge sense of relief after Mm -hmm. they learn about their diagnosis, because it's less about, um, like, why can't you? And it's more about, oh, this is why. And now I know mm-hmm. that there are ways forward. Uh, yeah. What was that for you? Or maybe it's changed. Maybe yeah. maybe you thought one thing and it's different for you now. Just curious. No, no, like, that, it was a gigantic relief. I think that there is, okay. I think within education, particularly, mm-hmm. like I feel like this in my educational journey, is just that like, if you don't, get something. If you don't understand something, you're just stupid. Like there's something wrong with you. And like, you don't fit into this system. Oh, it sounds like white supremacy. You don't fit into the system. You will be pushed to the outskirts. And so like, as, as somebody who, you know, became an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey is like a gigantic risk. And then all these different things. Um, every single time I sat for my computer and like nothing would happen for six hours, eight hours out of a day, like nothing. Like I would feel like a failure every single day, like every single day, like a just absolute failure. And so like to finally get a diagnosis and like our diagnosis and just mm-hmm. be told it's not necessarily, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just your brain operates differently. And there's actually a different path for you to like go. Even the language I use with my own coaching clients with like, when I'm talking to students or anything like that, when they use like language, like I'm stupid or I'm dumb or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm like, don't you dare talk about yourself like that. Don't talk about my friend like that. Don't talk about my client like that. Don't do that. Like we really need to get that language outside of our out, out. Like it just needs to not exist anymore because mm-hmm. I think, I think it yeah. is really dismissive, not just dismissive, but it is, um, what's the word? It helped me out. Allison. It's like, yeah. It's dehumanizing. Uh, it's like yeah. othering. It's like not even yeah. like acknowledging Other, the, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. really not acknowledging the, the difference that exists in, in learning, um, our learning capabilities and everything like that. And so, um, right. what if we were to change, um, our ideas yes. of learning into not necessarily you are a student fit into this mold, but rather you, right. um, we are teachers. How do we teach you how to learn? Um, or how do we, exactly. how do we like help you learn and navigate this with you? Right. Yeah. Which I, I just yeah. feel like it's just so backwards. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah so that's, look, that's a feeling. Yes. Because what you said, you said, sounds like white supremacy. Exactly. Mm. Right. Like, how is it that, how is it that in Hawaii where we have a totally different ethnic, you know, uh, and racial makeup in our schools, mm. right. In the continent continent where you know in the contiguous 48 states we when i'm studying to be an educator we learn about you know there's like a lot of white female teachers and that's mm-hmm. that's a, an issue that these mainland or continent schools are dealing with that's not our reality we have mm-hmm. a lot of asian right asian people who look like me yep. i don't that's all theory that yeah. i don't understand that right then they talk about the school to prison pipeline and mm-hmm. over disciplining Black and brown boys of color. That's what we're learning about in my, um, you know, in, as a up and coming educator in the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay, mm. but how does that translate to what we're seeing in Hawaii, where mm. it's predominantly Native Hawaiian mm. boys, because we don't have the same population demographics. But how mm. is that replicating? How is that practice in the gender and then, you know, the Native population? How is that replicating itself 
across an ocean, across mm-hmm. the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Must be white supremacy, right? Yeah, because absolutely. there's similar colonialism and that's the origin, right? When you look back at how, where the origin stories of these like Marvel villains, they're coming in, right? And, and, and using the same tools, right? The oppressors use the same kind of tools mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it shows up in, in, in ways where I think what I, in my practice, try to disrupt, right? Not asking critical questions, right? Mm. Thinking about the language that we use, mm. asking ourselves, what what do we mean when we say equity? What do we mm. mean when we say that this child cannot access this program? Mm. What what do we mean when we say that this child can't learn? Mm-hmm. How how is how is that a statement that we can say as educators they can't learn? That is mm. not true. Yeah. Every brain. You know, neurodiversity can learn. That's what neuroplasticity is. Like mm-hmm. at any age, like even the most um, severely, you know, disabled person, can, there's still the opportunity for the most part, right, to be able to learn. So, how is it that we have students that have a like lot of lot of brain potential, and you know, we as educators that's kind of my call to action always. Like, how are we reflecting upon, you know, what what identity stories we're bringing, mm-hmm. how we interact with the world and what we are saying, right? What are we, how are we saying, what are we messaging? And are we checking our assumptions about what's going on, what we're, what we're seeing? Because there's a lot of power, I think, like to your point in your story, there's a lot of power in being affirmed by your teacher mm-hmm. of being seen like as somebody who has the smarts and the will and the, the every student I've ever come into contact with has something incredibly like there's some incredible talent every student has. Yep, and yep. so I think like for me, specifically leveraging those strengths has always been the pathway forward. It's, you have to build, right? We have a negativity bias. We know this, yes. right? There, you need five positive messages to undo the one. Mm. Right. The Mm. one that's like five to one. That's as an advisor, someone working with the social emotional development with students um, and adults, too. Like so if as kids, we didn't get that. We definitely need that as adults. So you're like your gratitude book is going to be life changing, probably for a lot of people. And (laughs) can be really for you, too, right? Like that, those positive experiences and those positive messages about these teachers that have seen you. And reminding yourself of those things to that will undo that one message. But if someone's getting 10 negative messages and never really hearing, they're just mm. saying, never really hearing anything positive, just like, hey, this is what you need to work on. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to work on your executive function. You need to work on your time blindness. You need to work on yeah. <laughs> finishing your task by this time without ever talking about your incredible strengths. Like, you mm. run a whole podcast, you built a business from the ground up, you are, you know, employing people who are important to you, and you're taking care of your people, um, mm. your role model in your community, all those things that, you know, I know that you are. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, in, in addition to all the other things I don't even know. Um, I think that that's so important uh, in, you know, in the work that, you know, we do, and even just like, what we, you know, what we put out. Um, and I think in education, there's a lot of like people who don't understand their sphere of influence, like how much power that they have. Mm. Um, because let's be real with it. People are trying to ban books, trying to tell us how to, what we can say in classrooms yep. because they're scared that yep. we have a lot of teachers who know that we're not, we're not going to perpetuate these types of harmful messages that certain mm. people are not are not valued that they're not they should not be viewed as human like you said dehumanized or should not be like allowed into spaces mm-hmm. because that's how they win right yep. that's how yep. that's how they win uh, minds and they don't actually uh, you know they in- interfere with our hearts and I think that's yeah. that's the challenge and <laughs> yeah. um, I think yeah that's that's kind of why I see in education to yeah. You know, Allison spitting, fam, spit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So, uh, so one of the things that we did not mention, and I should have mentioned this, is that you would you're a doctor. So you just break it down yeah. to facts to folks. 
So yeah, <laughs> doctor. Um, so I, uh, everybody got a, a lot of taste of like mm-hmm. all of your knowledge, your wisdom, and definitely your passion as far as like education and the power of education and everything like that. What prompted you to make that transition to entrepreneurship then? Because that's, that's, I'm really curious. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, like you said, after, for me, after almost 20 years of working in schools, public, so I worked in public for 12 years as a mm-hmm. services coordinator, special education inclusion teacher, private in the Bay Area, private schools, um, that university for, you know, that minute. I just grew tired of feeling like too much of my time and energy was being spent on tasks mm-hmm. um, and busy work that comes with being employed. And working for someone else. Um, and I wanted to spend more time working with students, like on my terms, you know, using the skills that I learned um, and having some creative control over that, you know, like being able to use different tools in different ways that weren't necessarily the licensed tool that, you know, we picked as a school and things like that. Mm. Um, and I really, really love the work of like listening to students' experiences. I think that is something that is missing from a lot of our research in education. Um, special education students are often not included in a lot of research studies in terms of like their firsthand experiences. And I think there's a reason for that. I I have my own sort of theory about that. But what I wanted to do is first listen to what students were experiencing, get it, have an opportunity to spend time processing what they were saying and using my experience as a researcher and a practitioner to offer them tools and strategies that were proven to work with students based on the the like marriage of research and practice. That's my mm. degree. Uh, we were the first cohort in, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa to have what was called, it was the education doctorate of in professional practice. So we had to find a problem of practice that we wanted to solve in education. And we needed to use all the resources that they taught us, uh, you know, like how to do qualitative research, quantitative, how to analyze data, how to work with a client and do a scope of work and use all the different um, tools that they taught us to solve a real problem in one of our real life uh, school settings. So as I mentioned, mm-hmm. I did response to intervention and I just wanted to get back to that work and work, but like not work for someone else's agenda, but work on projects and with clients and with people who wanted to work with me. Mm-hmm. I've been told numerous times by supervisors that I am the most underutilized resource at the school. So I was tired of being a moderately paid, underutilized resource. I mm. wanted to, you know, phase out of that and be a person that can use my expertise to help people who want wanted my help. Like rather than yeah. trying to help people who didn't really want to change, perhaps. Like I really wanted to work with other change agents, people who get it, who want to be better at doing what we do and change the trajectory of Mm. the way that we're talking to kids, the way we're supporting kids, the way Mm. we're like talking to other educators and like building a network of support within each other. Cause even, you know, teachers and teacher leader, we're all, we're all human too. And we bring things. I think right now what's missing is sort of the, a, a space for us to catch up, you know, like I, I didn't do a lot of identity work. In fact, I did no identity work until 2015. I know what mm. it feels like to have racial privilege and be like a pretty nice person, but mm. like not have the resources to figure it out. And I really want to be in community with others and in, you know, in the continent. I just happen to be with other white female educators because that's who's in my industry. And mm. I want to work with other people who get it and want to do better the way that I did in 2015 when I came and had no idea what people were talking about. I'm like, what is DEI? What is diversity, mm. equity, and inclusion? Mm. What does it mean to be a woman of color? Nobody's ever called me that before. Mm. And so to, to like have all these terms thrown at you and, and like you're, you're in this affinity space now, like I never needed a racial affinity group, but yeah. I need it because I need it now because the, the school spaces, like to your point, like these spaces aren't designed for us. They're yeah. not designed for our racial identity to thrive, to be held. So then we have this like little group that we get to be a part of. Yeah, but those, yeah. you know, those things can still improve, right? We we can have solidarity across, you know, that's sort of my vibe. I'd rather have cross-cultural, all kinds of 
you know, people that are anti-white supremacy, right? Yeah. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, yeah. Where, what racial identity you have, if you're, if you're anti-white supremacy, like we're in affinity, I yeah. guess, you know, and yeah. so focus more on that. I think in terms of my work that I'm doing. Yeah. I love that. Um, and that's so, that's so dope. And, and I, I really do like hear that, that aspect of it. Cause I, I like even something you said, right. Of like, we have, uh, we have like our educational system and many systems mm-hmm. even work. We have these ideas where like literally these systems, the way mm-hmm. work is designed, education was designed. Mm-hmm. It literally was not, designed mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. black people in mind, Asian folks mm-hmm. in mind, any of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just really interesting to me that we are we have these curriculums and we have these these systems and we're like, all right, okay, all this DEI stuff is popping up in like the last 10 years. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and fit like black folks, Asian folks, brown folks, right. whatever, yeah. inside of this, yeah. right? which it's literally trying to fit a um, square peg into a triangle peg. Like it don't work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm, I lean closer to abolitionists where like we need to dismantle these structures altogether and build something new. Um, Mm -hmm. When people Mm -hmm. hear that, they're like, Oh, so it's just going to be broken and uh, dismantled the next year. No jackass. It means we, we, (laughs) (laughs) we go through a process. Right. But um, yes, but um but it is it is incredibly difficult, if not I would say more closely impossible, if not incredibly difficult, to operate and function yeah. in a system right. that was not designed for you because you're just constantly going to question, constantly going to. Yeah. Just, right. Prime example, you, Alice, like you came and you're like, "What the yeah. fuck is this? <laughs> like, like, I don't know what this. I don't know what any of this is." Right. Yeah. So, um, right. so that's just like yeah. I think your journey and story, even mm-hmm. the reason behind why you're in entrepreneurship, is like a prime example mm-hmm. of like why this shit don't work. Um, it probably won't, will yeah. not work. And so, like, you decided to right. build something of your own, which I, I, lo- I love that. Right. <laughs> I love that. Um, and the heart <laughs> and journey about that. Um. And I'm I'm really really curious for you too. Like, um, it sounds like now, like you you had mentioned earlier that 2015 was like kind of the start of your own mm-hmm. understanding or start of your own journey of like understanding your identity and everything. Like, because before that you didn't have to. Um, I'm curious, you know, as you're building your business, well, two mm-hmm. questions. First, it was how was that journey for you, and then mm-hmm. how does it play how does it play out in your your business now as you're building it out? Yeah. Um... So I think that one of the gifts that I received in education was um, having the opportunity to be a a seed facilitator. So get certified as a seeking educational equity and diversity facilitator. And I think being in that relative position of power, facilitating a group that is focused on educational equity, like in hearing stories of identity using the framework of windows and mirrors to see uh, differences and similarities in each other's stories Mm -hmm. to build right solidarity across difference to honor stories um, and to do that work that needs to be done. I think that, um, you know, in terms of that sort of that facilitation work has really framed how I approach, you know, the work that I want to do moving forward. Like that mm. felt for me, one of the most authentic sort of experiences of taking some time using the things that I think matter in terms of growth um, that I know that actually, you know, in adult learning theory does actually uh, transform people's understanding of themselves, right? It's like using inquiry and critical, the critical part of thinking, right? Critical mm. thinking, which again, calling back to those folks out there, the politicians that don't want to, us to cultivate critical thinkers, yep, don't like the critical part of critical race theory. It's because it's, it's people that can think for themselves yes. and think about and make connections and do that sort of deep work that I think in these white supremacist capitalist structures, right, that... I think we're both trying not to fall into, right, as entrepreneurs, but like that drive this unhealthy sense of urgency that Mm -hmm. is keeping us in a place of busy, of do, 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 produce, 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 and not really stopping and like what and asking ourselves, what assumptions am I making? You know, what Mm -hmm. is showing up for me and what is 
what is actually like my values for my ancestors from that wisdom, that place of, you know, strength and resilience? What, what do I have to listen to rather than trying to play that game? You know, and I think that for me, I see that in education, like that's replicated in education as a, as a form of, you know, one of the industries of work that Mm -hmm. other beautiful, amazing people who want to help kids are stuck in this kind of like this cycle of just like, just a shortcut. So that's where bias happens, right? You're just Mm. stuck in this like pattern of shortcuts. And a lot of times when you're stressed and doing shortcuts, you're actually operating from the deep biases that you were were modeled for you that you probably wouldn't want to admit (laughs) something in your, you know, your, your history. But it's because, you know, we have generational trauma. We have people who are, we're trying to survive and teaching us the best that we can. So mm-hmm. uh, I went on, see, I go off on tangents too. So I love uh, a good I, tangent. I don't know <laughs> you spit it. You spit <laughs> it. <laughs> I love to answer your question. Yeah. Um, I'm like forgetting the question because I'm giving this like conversation. Yeah. And, uh, did I answer that first part? Um, so I'm gonna be real with you. You didn't, Allison, but what you said was good. I so I don't even care. So, but the, um, but I would say, like, but um, I would say, to the to the point, I, I think that the, uh, to what you just raised is like the critical, the aspects of critical like thinking, right? It's it's. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that like they're talking about freedom of choice, but like you are el- literally eliminating our ability to choose. Right. Like that is the right. goal of all these bands. Like what you're saying, like that's the goal, right? right. Which is like, what is actually learning? What we're right. actually instilling now in, in a lot of these countries and our right. countries, yeah. <laughs> states, yeah. um, right. particularly in Louisiana where I'm at right now, it's like wow. they're literally re- reverting back to like 1932 with reproductive rights, with learning, with book bans and different things like that. So when we're talking about like folks who care about education Mm -hmm. and want free thinking and like Mm -hmm. actual choice and different things like that, Mm -hmm. to your point, it's like one, get out and vote. But two, it's like Mm -hmm. we have to understand that critical thinking, thinking hard, Mm -hmm. being challenged, being uncomfortable being willing to unlearn, uh, like, listen, like, all these dynamics actually help us, not in just, like, classroom settings, right, right. but beyond, right, when we think about, <laughs> which is the purpose of, like, education, right, how right. do we do life well, right. not just to get a good job, uh, but to right. be a good human being, right, right. when we yeah. eliminate this critical thinking portion of, like, we just, like, oh, no, it's gonna, it's gonna be all right, no, mm-hmm. like, we actually, <laughs> let's think about this, like, you know, in a grander okay. context. So, um, okay. but anyways, I, uh, but like uh, to get to the point uh, or to mm-hmm. go back to the question I asked, it's like, yes. you know, for your um, identity, a way of yeah. like the, your, your, as you like grown and learn like more about who you are, um, mm-hmm. what do you feel is, how has that played a role in like your entrepreneurial journey? If it has at all. Yes. Um, so I think that, the identity piece has been, it's, I think it's been a complicated journey, but very illuminating. So Mm. meaning that I had no knowledge of what my race meant, you know, contextually beyond Hawaii. Mm. So it was like, for me, in Hawaii, I think what I experienced mostly, which we won't get into is like, it's more of like a sexist sort of uh, culture where mm. men are elevated, any man uh, elevated above a woman in terms of leadership and access mm. to jobs and job security, things like that. Mm. On the flip side, coming here, um, I saw that race was actually something where I felt like that was the <laughs> so that was the piece that I felt like people were, you know, yeah, just like discounting what I could do perhaps what I could offer, um, not seeing me as a leader in that particular way. And so I think for me, I decided, well, I'm going to do what I think that I'm good at. And in terms of my identity, it's like the identity and the culture piece is, you know, growing up in Hawaii, in a predominantly like indigenous culture, there's like that collectivism and relationship, relational trust that I see as something that um, is non-negotiable for me within, you know, the dynamics of my identity and mm. that idea of building solidarity across difference. 
Um, that's sort of the ethos of what happened and you know, and there's complexities, right, in Hawaiian culture, but there's one aspect that I think is true for my identity story around immigrants coming together, right? Because there was a time where there's a Hawaiian kingdom, and then some white folks came in and wanted to, um, you know, commercialize the labor. Mm-hmm. And while they didn't enslave people, they did like, you know, they they created a system, white folks created a system where they benefited and had plantations and then mm-hmm. had labor come in. And that's where my family came in. And they were in that, they were workers, right? They were not elites coming in, like mm. the elites that were coming in, uh, like academic elites coming into the continental US, they're coming in to work and be laborers because we didn't have, you know, uh, generational wealth. And so mm. in in there's, there's evidence of those groups coming together, all the ethnic mm. groups, Filipinos, Portuguese, Chinese, Japanese coming together and Hawaiians too, in some cases, right? And creating their own culture, their own language, mm. right? They had to, they were speaking different languages, create pidgin English to communicate mm. to like resist the oppressor, right? Mm. So the, the the Luna, which is the the uh, person who oversees the plantation and the people benefiting, they they actually came together to resist that sort of um, mm. you know to resist the oppressive conditions and things like that. And I think mm. that that for me is like part of my history and what. I want to do in the work that I do. I want to build with other people. I want to mm-hmm. like honor the differences we have, but create something new together yeah. that is, you know, that is better for us all. And so I think that that is part of my identity, but more, maybe more of my culture and my values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've really started to understand that because people talk about solidarity all the time, but mm-hmm. I don't actually see it because I've seen what it looks like in like, I feel like there's a difference. There's a lot of talk. And mm-hmm. I grew up, it's like, where I grew up, it's like, don't be all talk, no action. That's like, yeah. the, I'm like anti that. Yeah. And I think that, that is like the legacy of the, my people, of my community. It's like that we, we're going to say what we don't like about something and we're going to try to, we're going to try to change it, but we're going to do it together. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find our people and we're going to, we're going to try to do it with like love and compassion and honor everyone's humanity in the mm-hmm. process. Um, and also resist and fight and bring out that warrior when there's people trying to come for us. Cause it's, it's yeah. not, it's not always the same, you know, yeah. like, you don't like we're not going to be pushovers either. So yeah. that's kind of, I think where my identity comes in. I love that. <laughs> and I think that like, I even, you know, I feel and see like your identity or your values come through. So like clearly, right. Of like, you know, trust the connection, unlocking the superpowers, making action matter, mm-hmm. honoring identity mm-hmm. and experience. And then the reflection is like key. And so mm-hmm. I, I just like love every aspect of that, like being embedded um, as you talk about, like not just the work that you do, but how you're going to do it. And even how you, I wouldn't say doing it differently because like, this mm-hmm. is something that's like in you. Right. And so it just, mm-hmm. it feels different to other people because they hadn't seen it actually done (laughs) in a way that like matters. Right. Um, and so I think that that's like one, a beautiful thing. And two, like, I just like see that I fucks with a heavy and like, I'm absolutely about it. You know what I'm saying? Um, because I think it is, uh, I don't like fakeness. I don't like what people like say stuff like, I got you, I got you, I got you. Cause I've had so many people in my life be like, I got you. Um, and then I'm like, where you at? Like, where you at? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Um, Uh, you damn sure weren't there in 2020. So I think that there is like a a deep, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is a deep, uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. what is the word? I think that there is like understanding, but like embodiment, I would say, mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. actual community. Because, and I've, right. I, and I, I'm really like loving this in the last like year. I've like keep finding people like yourself that like, mm-hmm community mm-hmm. like actual community yeah. like what do you need how can i help you yeah. i got some i got some sugar for you if you need it like yeah. whatever yeah. like we're not an actual neighbors but i'm just saying like sure. there's just like legitimate yeah. stuff of like what do you need i got right. you um, mm-hmm. yeah and it's just like mm-hmm. not this like transactional whatever it's just like truly it's because you're another person, bro. Like you don't have to return this. You don't have to do give anything back. Like I see you. Right. Um, I see you in me, and I and I also see myself in you. Whatever. Like this whole like reciprocal community right. actual thing, um, which yeah. I I really do mess with heavy. And so I I see it come through um, in what you do, 
who you are um, and as you talk about your work. So I, I truly like want to honor that. I, I just like love it, love it, love it so much. Um, I have kept you for so, so long. Uh, <laughs> this has been so fun. No, I've kept myself here because it's a, such a joy to talk with you. And I'm sorry to like interrupt you, but I just no, have to say you're just incredibly talented as a facilitator. I can just only imagine how cared for and held your your clients must be. They're so they must be so lucky to have this like time with you, whether it's one on one or in a yeah. group. I could you're just like a like ma- a magician. I don't know, a magician, <laughs> alchemist. I don't know. You got get away with your words, your stories. You're so engaging. It, like, I mean, you're just an incredible entrepreneur and person i mean first and foremost person so i just have really really appreciated the time that you know we've spent together and the invitation to collaborate with you on your podcast which is so amazing absolutely well thank you so much if i could i'd be blushing right now but i'm just a tad bit too dark (laughs) (laughs) but uh Yo, Allison, I would love to like just ask you one final question. Like, what are you working on? Like, what are you excited to put into the world? Um, and I would love to like, you know, this is your opportunity uh, to share. What are you excited about right now? Yeah, right now, immediately, I am working on launching a an equity workshop for learning specialists, and that's um, projected to happen in January. So uh, that's a, a further out thing, but. Um, I actually was inspired by you and all the co-working spaces that you created on Twitch yeah. uh, recently. Uh, yeah. I also did something similar to try to build community mm. uh, with the learning specialists that I are on my you know mailing list and in my community on Friday. I'm going to host a space where we're going to look at some resources um, that I shared uh, for ADHD Awareness Month and Amazing. many of us are working on, you know, developing infographics and, you know, also just supporting students. So we're going to bring projects or dilemmas and just have a space where we can talk because a lot of us are working alone in our mm-hmm. schools. So I wanted to, after your, you know, model after you and the incredible yeah. work that you do to bring together and have a Zoom, a co-working Zoom on Friday. It's like yeah. free. It's just a fun thing. Allison, thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolute joy. Uh, So fun. Yeah. So many laughs. Uh, We got plenty of like little clips and stuff like that. I'm sure. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, I wish there was an emoji function. So Reggie didn't just give me thumbs up, but um, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. Uh, But thank you. Yeah. Same. Have a good day. I'll see you later.